Hi, I'm Debbie. I'm an alcoholic. I'm so honored to be here. I want to thank Kay and everybody on the committee for the privilege of being able to share here this weekend. I've already had a full heart from hearing the other speakers, and I am so pleased that I have a new friend with Claire. I just, it's, it's just been such a blessing. Let me speak louder. Yes, ma'am. And <laughs> I'll do the coffee cups too. But anyway, <laughs> I'm an alcoholic at Al, and I'll do whatever you want me to. <laughs> but anyway, okay. 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 <laughs> anyway, I'm I'm honored to be here, and I want to thank. Um, the people from the committee that put that nice little gift basket in the room and, and all the work that everybody does to put a, a nice weekend like this together. It's really a privilege to be here. Um, I so enjoyed the other speakers, and I just um, I look forward to hearing um, Parker and the other Palmer and the other speakers that I haven't heard before. Um, I, I got sober June 1st, 1985, in my home group to Carlsbad Thursday night workshop in San Diego County, and my sponsor goes there, and a lot of sponsees, and I just, I love what Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon have done for my life. Um, I never felt a part of my whole life. I grew up one of five kids, and I grew up in a home where there was a lot of alcohol, and I don't blame my alcoholism on my mom, dad, or anybody else in our family tree. We just have a lot of little broken branches, but I am... Um, <laughs> There's just, I, you know, in the big book it talks about we drink because we like the, the effect produced by alcohol. And that's what happened to me. And I drank ever since I was a little kid. I would take sips of my mom and dad's beer and they'd have to pry the glass out of my hand. And, and I, um, my dad uh, let me be his little helper on the weekend. And I didn't know quite what we were doing, but we were working in the basement. And there was a pool table in our rec room down there. And my dad was drilling a hole in the side of the refrigerator. And, and I realized he was putting a tap in for a cake. And so I was like, I love my dad. <laughs> That's the best kind of dad to have. And so as a teenager, I would, I would steal alcohol from my parents. And I found the neighborhood kids that drank the way I did. And, and we would always, um, on the weekends, find older siblings and stuff to buy us alcohol. And I smoked a lot of pot all through junior high and high school. Um, I got the nickname Doobie because of that. Um, <laughs> and so I would go to school pretty stoned in the morning and, um, you know, make sure relax. <laughs> so anyway, so I would smoke on the way to school because that was easier to get at that age. And I, um, in the morning, people would say, hey, Doobie, what's up besides you? <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, not much, you know. And so it was a small town in Ohio and my parents and some of my high school friends' parents were buddies from the Elks Club, and so we were at a barbecue at their house, and um, their dad said, hey, Doobie, how do you want your turkey? You know? And my mom yanked me aside, and she goes, Doobie, what's that mean? What's that Doobie? And I go, it's Doobie, Doobie, Doo. That's what that means. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, suck it up and live the lie. You know what I mean? <laughs> my mom still thinks that that's what that was. 
I just worked and drank, and that was my whole life. And so I would go home in the evening, have a few go back and work until late at night. And it was, you know, some of the other people at work, we, we would pull long hours, and we would actually drink and smoke cigarettes in the office, and the boss didn't care as long as we worked all night. And so I just, but what little self-esteem I had, I got from my job and pay raises and promotions, and, and I was dying on the inside. I didn't feel like I fit in there, but I knew I didn't want to tell my mom that she'd just say come back to Ohio, and I knew I didn't fit in back there either. I just felt that loneliness and that disconnect no matter where I went. And when I drank, it took all of that away. And so I thought that, I thought that feeling as often as I could. And alcohol didn't start causing me a lot of problems. I mean, it did with my, with my parents growing up, you know, being a nasty little teenager. But, um, but I couldn't see any outside reasons that alcohol was causing me any problems because I was getting promotions and I was buying material things and my house was clean and everything was in its place because I was neurotic is why it was. But anyway, um, I started... Um, drinking with a neighbor gal, and, and water seeks its own level. God had put a lot of great co-workers in my life that invited me out on dates or over to their um, houses for barbecues and stuff, and I never wanted to go because I was so terrified that if I went over there, if I drank, they wouldn't be able to stop me from drinking, and I'd make a fool of myself, and they'd find out what I was really like, and I was terrified, so it was easier to just not go and to be lonely than to go and have them reject me. So I'll just say no right now and protect myself. And they didn't know that. They just thought I didn't care about them. And so my my loneliness, you know, put a wall up, and it prevented me from the very thing that I was craving with friendship. And so, but I would always protect my alcohol. That always came first. So I met this neighbor lady, Susan, and she partied the way I did. And she was a single mom, but when she wouldn't have her son, we would drink together after work, and we'd drink until, you know, either pass out or black out, and I made a lot of drunken phone calls. I was sitting there this morning listening to Valerie, I said, wish I had her mom's number. <laughs> we went to have a phone call in the middle of the night, you know, because I got a little chatty in the middle of the night. Anyway, <laughs> people, not everybody likes to be woke up. Anyway, so... I, you know, alcohol caused me a lot of problems. I started having a lot of blackouts and make the drunken phone calls, and the paranoia was getting worse. And so when Susan and I were talking, she said, the reason why we're so unhappy, Deb, is we don't have a hobby. She goes, we need to go deep sea fishing. And so, okay. <laughs> so we we went to the Oceanside Harbor on Saturday morning. We had our coolers of beer, and people were drinking a, on the dock at 5.30 in the morning, and I thought, oh, she's right, we are fishermen. Anyway, <laughs> Martin and I gave her credit for it. And so we went out on one of these Hellgren's boats, and it was it was really fun. It's, it's amazing to me now because I charter boats for my coworkers, but we go for fish. <laughs> and so anyway, but we were trolling for other things, really. So we went on this boat, and it was, you know, we were drinking before we ever got on, and it's a good thing you can rent poles because we didn't have poles. We had coolers. <laughs> and so we um, we had a great time that day, and I loved it because right before you ever get out in the ocean, they encourage you to throw up over the railing if the ocean causes you problems. And I thought, how nice you can blame it on the water. Anyway, I'm so, so I loved it, and I met we met these guys that we partied with that day and fished and drank and flirted with and 
within a week and a half, I had moved one of them in with me. And uh, he was an unemployed IV drug user alcoholic contractor. <laughs> I joke that he was my catch of the day. <laughs>
deadbolt. I'm like, oh, I better donate those. I'm gonna only keep one left. Anyway, and so, but it's the insanity of how my life was then and how it is now is night and day things to the 12 steps. And I, um, I threw them out for the last time, and I had an older sibling call and say that. My mom's alcoholism had gotten so bad that they were going to do an intervention back in Toledo and that my dad and my brother and my sisters had been going to Toledo weekly for these classes and would I fly home for it, but I couldn't tell mom. And I said that I would, and I talked to the counselor back there, and she said I had to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting before I came home. And then I would have to come home for a week before and go to all these things that they had been doing for months. So I said I would do that because I was happy to lock her up someplace. Um, I, didn't, I didn't have compassion. I didn't have any understanding. And I wasn't the least bit aware that I was an alcoholic. And so I just wanted her to be different. And so I, I went to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. The only time I'd ever even heard of it before was from my doctor. I had been going to him for chronic stomach problems because of throwing up all the time. And he asked me how much I drank, and I thought, none of your business, really. <laughs> but I didn't say that out loud. And I, I said, just a couple. And he goes, okay, well, you might want to take a look at these pamphlets, and if you want any of them, help yourself. And he had that literature rack with all the little pamphlets in his office. I think he was prepared for me. But anyway, um, and he gave me this prescription for this Maalox kind of stuff and left. And I looked at the pamphlets, and I thought, okay, I'll take a couple of them, like to the woman alcoholic and too young and all this stuff because I was in my 20s, and then I realized that he's trying to frame me. After I leave, he'll count them, and there's probably 10 each of all of them, and then there'll only be nine, and then so, good thing I sharp, and so I didn't take it. <laughs> I ain't touching any of them. Anyway, so I actually fired him as my doctor. I still friend it. And so I was, and then I was close to hitting my bottom, and I, I went out, and I kept drinking like a crazy person, and I got picked up for drunk driving. And had to spend the night in jail, and I made a little bit of a scene. And um, I joke, I got my own cell. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> no double bunks for me, but I even got a uh, pack of cigarettes. So <laughs> I, um, those police officers were really nice to me, and I thank God that I didn't have to kill anybody in my um, disease. You know, I drove drunk and I drove in blackouts all the time. I'm lucky that I only had one night in jail because I deserve many. Many. And so I um, I went to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting at the Oceanside Milano Club. And I went there, and this young guy that Cliff Roach sponsors now, had known and been friends with for 28 years. He was a young guy then, and he had all the pamphlets in the, the book, and so I thought he was a therapist, and everybody else was a sickie. And uh, the first guy that shared said, Hi, I'm Fred. I'm an alcoholic. Everybody goes, Hi, Fred. And I'm like, Who in my cheek to keep them laughing? I'm like, Oh, poor Fred doesn't know his name. Hi, Fred. Let's put my mom in here. Anyway, so I'm just judging everybody and missing the message. And afterwards, he came up to me and he said, You didn't say you were an alcoholic. And I said, No, I just drink beer only. And then that little voice, you know, that little liar voice, it's like, You can't even get your hands up. And I'm like smiling and I'm listening to this in my head, you know. And he goes, He goes, Oh, okay. And he started smiling. He goes, Let me give you my number. I thought, He's hitting on me. <laughs> and they were like, he wasn't. He was thinking chapter three. But anyway, so he wrote his number down. He goes, well, when you do your intervention on, on your mom, why don't you give me a call and let me know how that goes. 
And so I went back to Ohio and I went to an Al-Anon and an AA speaker meeting and I watched all these videos on alcoholism and then met with the counselor and she goes, what do you think? And I was crying I go, I think I'm an alcoholic. She goes, you may be, but we're only here for your mom. And I'm like, you got it. Only oh, mom. I'm on board with that. I didn't say I wanted to quit. I just was crying because I was an alcoholic. I wasn't joyful about that. I was, um, I was really shocked. I didn't know. You know, I just knew that alcohol was the solution to my problem. And I didn't realize it was also the problem. And so I did this intervention with my family, and my mom um, agreed to stay in that treatment center for 28 days. And my siblings all went home with their spouses, and um, my dad and I got my mom's clothes and took them back, and then we went straight to the Elks Club. And we drank, and we didn't talk about what happened, and we both needed a drink. We said, no, I did. And I couldn't drink them fast enough. And we were just talking about who I should pick in the football pool and how the weather was in California and all this superficial stuff. And inside I was dying because I had just done a difficult thing and asked her to do something that I knew without a doubt I wasn't willing to do myself. And I was so self-centered. I wanted her to be the mom that I wanted, but I didn't give a darn whether I was the daughter she wanted. And it was just, and I knew that, and that conflict just made me need alcohol even more. And so I moved, I came back to California, and she got out a month later, and you guys had made a difference in my mom. She was happy again, and my mom's a funny lady, and she was playing golf again, and just a great lady. Her sense of humor was back full speed, and it was really great. She was going to meetings, and, and my drinking was just spiraling me downhill, and after a few months, I admitted to her that I had an alcohol problem. And I said, but I don't want to lose my job because, like I said, my job was all I had. It was everything. And so she said, you don't have to go to a treatment center, Deb. You can just go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't know that. I thought that she was my only example. And so by that afternoon, I realized I called a little too early. You know what I mean? You know how Saturday morning you can make those calls? You know? <laughs> anyway, so I was drinking in the afternoon, and then um, within a couple of days, I got this big manila envelope, and it had all those pamphlets in it, and it had all these 20 questions and all this stuff, and it's like, my mom never asked me, did you get those pamphlets? Did you read them? Did you go to a meeting? She never once, and that was the respect that she gave me. And... Um, my, she had some surgery, and her dad, my grandpa that got sober, passed away. And a few months later, I got sober, but my mom had gone back to drinking. And it's like, um, she still drinks to this day, but you know what? I can treat her with the love and respect that she deserves. And it's like, I can't help my mom, but you can. And there's people in Alcoholics Anonymous in Ohio waiting for her. And it's like, and I can help your mom, and I can help your daughter. And that's what we do here, you know? We just help each other. And so I, um, I had moved into this little guest cottage, and it was um, up a steep driveway behind the landlord's main house. He had a the three-car garage and this little dollhouse on top of it, and that's where I rented the last two months of my drinking. And I had moved out from that little IV drug user a couple of years before, threw him out for the last time. And I lived in there, and I was, um, I was so paranoid at the end of my drinking for those two months that I thought people were looking in the windows, you know, tall people. <laughs> so anyway, so I realized that because, that because you know, they could see through the little lace curtains that I better drink with the lights off. And then at, at that time, I was still a smoker, so when I took a drink, I 
could see my face, and then I thought, only safe place is the kitchen floor. So I was drinking on the kitchen floor. I mean, and that's where I felt safe, so they couldn't see me, whoever they were. And I was so paranoid, and I needed my alcohol so bad, and it was so hard at 27 years old to get up off the kitchen floor, because that's where alcoholism had taken me. And my coworkers and surveyors at work were starting to say things like, at 7 in the morning, Deb, you might want to brush your teeth again. You still smell like alcohol. And I didn't realize it was coming out my pores. And I thought alcoholics were people that drink in the morning. And if I'm still drinking in the morning, it's really from last night, so it's still last night. Anyway, so that's not alcoholic. So that's how I talked myself out of that. But I, um, I was so drunk, I would fall against the wall and fall sideways into the bathtub and couldn't get out. And it was just, I was just trying to make it to the toilet to throw up. And that's where alcoholism had taken me. And I, I had a spiritual experience. And I believe in angels because of it. Because I went to my dining room table, and we were up high on top of this little hill. And I had a great view out my dining room window, and I was crying. And I was at my dining room table, and I just said, God, help me. And I'm so thankful that my mom taught all of us kids to say that now I lay me down to sleep prayer when I was a kid. And she taught us about God. And as we got to be teenagers and we'd, I'd go to church with my, some of my drinking neighborhood friends were Catholic. And so they'd have to go to, to church on Saturday evening so they wouldn't have to get up in the morning. They had their choice. And so I'd go with them. And I just never felt a part of in any certain religion. And my mom raised me the way she was raised. And I know that now because of of the 12 steps that God has you understanding. She goes, you can, you can find your God any way you want. Just keep it personal to yourself. And so I knew that that morning to reach out to God, and I said, God, help me, and that's all I said. And somebody picked me up from under my arms, and I just felt like I was just hoisted up out of the chair, and I went over to the kitchen counter, and I watched my hand open the phone book. And I had no conscious thought of what was going on. I just watched my hand turn the pages, and my fingers were at the Alano Club. I thought that's where that AA meeting was. So I dialed the number. I just dialed in it. So like for the first time, my mind was quiet. I didn't have all that paranoia and insanity going on. And I dialed in this lady after she goes, hey, I'm Judy, I'm a happy alcoholic. And I'm like, whoa, Judy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't know, but I can tell you. Anyway, I <laughs> Judy. Uh, it down. Anyway, I was, <laughs> she goes, can you come to a meeting right now? And I said, yes. And so I just got off the phone and I went there. And I still quiet. I mean, I, I didn't feel good physically, but I didn't have all the insanity going on. And I just did the next indicated thing. And she met me at the door and the meeting was already going on that morning. And she pulled me in and sat me next to a lady that was knitting like, like your friend right there scaring the heck out of me. She was like, hey, can you take it? Anyway, I'm sitting there watching her these pointy little things. And I'm like, <laughs> she was so nice to me, though. And she, and that was Darlene. She ended up being my sponsor for just a couple of months. And, and she went back out or whatever. But um, she pulled me in. You know, they say to those now in, its fold, in the fold, in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, it has made the difference. And that's what you guys have done for me over the years and continue to do. And I think that's our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics and pull them into the fold, you know, because the fringes is where we lose people. And so anyway, um, they did that that day, and Judy took a napkin and she wrote H-A-L-T on it, and she gave me that. She goes, 
Those are things to watch for. Don't get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. She goes, you need to be careful of that. And she gave me her number and said to, that I could call her. And, and like I said, Darlene started sponsoring me and told me to go to 90 meetings in 90 days and to call her every day. And, and just like Valerie, it's like I would call her in the morning and have anxiety attacks. And I was just like, couldn't even catch my breath. And she said, make the bed and call me back. Take a shower, call me back. And go to work and stay all day and call me back. And I did all those things. And she taught me to start eating dinner because I would come home from work and I'd change smoke cigarettes and drink a whole pot of coffee and talk on the phone to my phone list people and go to the media and I'd be like, you know, because I liked a lot of sugar in it too. You know, I was just like, I had AAADD. I was like, whoa, what? Missing the message. It sounded like Charlie Brown's mom up here. Wah, 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 wah. You know, who's dating who and all this. Anyway, I was missing the message. So she said, perhaps you would like to eat dinner after you get home from work. Put a little food in there. And so anyway, so I started doing that, and she just taught me about taking care of myself. And, and Judy was, it was great because she said that, she goes, Deb, what I do is I get on my knees every morning, and I ask God to remove the obsession and desire to drink. And I get on my knees at night, and I thank him for another day of sobriety. And I've done that every day for all these 28 years because it works, and it's worked every day since then. And in the beginning, though, Judy said, you know what, if you don't believe in God, believe my God's big enough for the both of us. And so I was like, okay, I got on my knees the next day, and I said, Judy's God. Please remove the expression and desire. And I did that because I so, I, like I said, I was raised that there was a God, but I thought because of the, the moral values and the way that I was living my life that went against everything my parents, not just what they taught me, but what they showed me, I knew right from wrong. And I'm so grateful to grow up in a home where I was taught right from wrong. And it's like in a work ethic and how to keep a nice home and pay your bills on time and shovel the elderly person's driveway. Just, you know, I was taught a lot of good tools for living just emotionally. I was a wreck. And so I prayed to Judy's God because I thought he didn't want to hear me. I was on a blacklist. And after about three days, it was working. I thought, well, I want my own God. So I started praying to mine, and it worked just as good. And so that's how I started on my journey. And it's like I knew I was alcoholic in my life. I didn't think was completely unmanageable because I still had that job. And my house was clean, and, and everything was paid, and all those kind of tools that I thought were to make me successful. And what I found out after a couple years is right how unmanageable I was on the inside all my emotions, and I was just a train wreck on the inside, but things on the outside were looking okay, and, and being um, being willing to take direction and turn my will and my life over to the 12 steps was how I became restored to sanity, and I trusted you guys to do that for me, and turning my will and my life over to God, I, my sponsor made me write, write down on a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, and on the left side, write where I hope God is. And on the other side, what I hope he is, and, and critical, and keeping a black list of who did all the bad things, and unforgiving, and, and loving, and unconditional, and all those things. And as you said, tear it in half and throw away your old idea, and get rid of that, Deb, and hang on to that. And your idea of God will change and expand over time, but that's a good start. And that's what worked for me. And then the 12 and 12, it talks about that all we need is the key of willingness and that door open. And even though self-will can slam it shut, it, as soon as we pick up the key of willingness again, it'll open. And, and I was taught to get busy doing your fourth step and that you're as sick as your secrets. And, and I did my inventory. And I did a, I just 
did like an autobiography in the beginning. It was the best that I could do. And the sponsor that I had at that time, um, she wasn't a big book person. And so I just did it. And it was enough to get rid of some of the garbage. And I was taught it's like peeling an onion. It got rid of, of a few layers, you know, with a lot of tears. But it was going to take more work to get deeper and deeper. And I switched sponsors after I had that gallon um, to a lady who was really into the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And she showed me the columns and helped me understand them better. I'm like, I don't get this whole brown thing, you know, snub Jones. Who's, who's all these people? Anyway, so, but she helped me understand them and helped me by taking some things going on in my life and show me by example how to do it. She showed me. And uh, she shared with me her experience. And I went through that and, and I didn't leave anything out. And I was, because the book says we're building a foundation and I want mine to be on concrete. I want a solid foundation. I dated this guy. Um, we were friends for like 11 or 12 years. And he was a really great friend to me in this program. And he was um, somebody that had gone in and out many times. But we always stayed close friends. We had the same warped sense of humor. and. I made a decision based on self, too, because he wanted to take it to a different level and, and date. And I was having surgery for the first time, and I thought, if this doesn't work, who would I want to spend my time with? And, and that was a selfish decision, and it became absolute insanity. I should have gone to Ellen on that, but I worked promptly after that because um, it was insanity being with somebody in and out and not knowing what was going on. And it almost took me to the cleaners for 20-some years of sobriety just emotionally train wrecked me um, because of doing all the things that you hear laughed about in as past tense and they were my current tense and so it was just it was hard to, to do that with um, years of recovery so anyway um, but when I was doing my inventory and I shared that with Jody and she helped me label my defects to character and showed me how to go home and spend an hour quiet time and look over the first five steps and make sure I didn't leave anything out and do my sixth and seventh steps. And I love how Scott Redman always talked about step seven because it helped me understand how to bring that into my daily life better because he said, what defective character in me, if it was removed, would make this situation better? And it helped me to apply that easier to my workplace and, and different situations that were still plaguing me. Um, and I made my eight-step list, and I made my amends, and some were living amends, like with my family, after making direct amends to them, and paying back the money, and I paid back the money to the ice cream place that I stole it from, and I was, I was taught the first time to pay it anonymously to charity, and for years that bothered me, because even though I paid it back with interest, um, like I was taught that whenever people would talk about financial amends, I never felt clean, because I never paid it back to who I took it from. And so um, Dr. Paul was my sponsor for a few years before he passed away, and, and I told him about it, and he said, you know what, just redo your amends. So I was fortunate I was making better money, and I got that money together and went back to Ohio and, and made that amends, and it, it went beautiful. And I just I was so afraid to do that. And it was so well-received. The guy, um, he said, I don't know if you know it, but I have cancer, and, and I just sold that ice cream place. And, and he lovingly let me off the hook. He said, you know what, Dad, because the 60s and 70s were rough on everybody. I'm like, okay, thank you. Here's the money. But the thing that I loved is that I knew I would have felt clean after I left, whether it was well well received or not, because I did the right thing. I paid it back to who it was owed to. And so 
the financial amends really were it was scary, but it was easier than doing the living amends to people who are still drinking and that kind of stuff. Because then I think, you know, well, if you would, you know, I would do a thorough 10 step, usually theirs. <laughs> and then they just to mine. <laughs> I'm working two programs, mine and theirs. <laughs> and so, anyway, um, that was harder, and, and it has been. Just recently, in the last few months, it's been so good with all my siblings. And it's like I've been talking to all of them really often, and my brother um, just bought a plane ticket to come out and see me for the first time in, like, 12 years. And so he's coming next month, so I'll get to spend a weekend with him, and I put together a fishing trip, and hopefully we'll get fish, but I won't have a new roommate. Anyway, I <laughs> so it's nice that I can do that, and I go home for Mother's Day and do that kind of stuff. And, you know, I heard a speaker early in sobriety, and she said, if I made a list of everything I wanted, I would have shortchanged myself. And I thought, boy, you're cheating yourself, because I'm a list maker. <laughs> so I went home, and I made a list that night after her, and I wrote, I want a husband and a house. And I want to go to Alaska and Europe, and I want to pass the LS and LSIT exams to be a licensed land surveyor, get my degree, and have kids. I wanted six kids. And I um, had to take a step two yet. Anyway, so I, <laughs> but I realized later on, you know, because I got a couple of those things. I bought a house just a couple of years ago, and I got my degree in survey. It took me 10 years for my two-year degree. Well, <laughs> easy does it, you know. And so I <laughs> taking one class a semester kind of drags it on, but I um. I went to Europe a couple of times in sobriety and I got some of those things, but the thing is, and I still, I, I don't mind the things that are on that list, they're, they're nice things to want, but they're all outside of me. And I didn't realize that until I had a lot of years of sobriety that what that really was was a list of my old ideas of what I thought would make me happy. And none of them were things that nobody can take away from you. You know, what you give me with the promises and stuff are things that I truly want now. I didn't want those in the beginning. I thought you guys made a pretty big deal out of some of that. So I was like, come and serenity. Anyway, I am like, how about a house? You know, and so <laughs> I was just, you know, because I still was caught up in the outside stuff, you know, and you guys taught me different. And, and at seven years of sobriety, I thought, well, I want to go to Europe, you know, and I'm going to do it just like you taught me. I'm going to do it a day at a time. Because when I was new, Judy taught me that. And she was such, she never sponsored me, but she taught me so much. She was a beautiful lady. And I would call her up in the middle of the night, you know, I had a, a few weeks of sobriety, I guess, at that time. And I called her up and I said, Judy, you don't drink ever? Not, not Christmas or your wedding day? And she goes, well, are, are you engaged? And I go, no. She goes, well, won't worry about that. And so I said, okay, you got me back in the moment, you know. And I said, not Christmas even? She goes, honey, it's June. <laughs> so and she goes, we do this a day at a time. And she goes, Beth, you can drink tomorrow unless you wake up tomorrow and it's today. Love you, bye. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, if you call them and you wake them up, that's what you get, you know. And so anyway, but she taught me about living a day at a time. And so when I decided to go to Europe, I thought, I'm going to do it a day at a time. And I'm going to go all over England and Scotland. And I love golf, so I was going to go to St. Andrews and do all that. And and I, I got there, and you guys taught me to um, go to World, you can get the World Service Directory and find out where meetings were ahead of time. And I did that, and I um, I went to a, first, a meeting my very first night there. And it's funny, before I went, several months before this old British guy showed up at my Monday book study, and, and I didn't tell him, you know, that I was afraid at that time, but we became pen pals. And this lady at my home group said, 
you're going to Europe alone, not with a tour group, there's a big pocket there, and I'm like, oh, now I'm afraid, you know, I wasn't, but thanks so much, you know, putting that joy in my heart, and so anyway, so I was writing to Brian, and I didn't say anything about pickpockets, I'd be offensive, but I, I just said I was a little bit afraid coming over there traveling as a single gal, and he wrote me back, and he said, um, God lives this side of the pond, and he said, if you don't, if you don't mind, why don't we meet your third day in London for a meeting in Chelsea and go to dinner, and would you speak at my home group in Bristol on your last night, and so I had two AA commitments, and I had so I was like so joyful and I, I went to London and I went to a meeting the very first night by myself and I got there early because you taught me to do that and I'm a big tea drinker and so I got there early and they make these huge pots of tea there and so I'm helping the ladies in the kitchen and we're making tea and all of a sudden this church fills up and I crammed in and I got in my seat and the tea lady was at the end and she was like, so I'm like, Go back out and go, yeah, and she goes, mind your wallet, love, the man next to you is a pickpocket. <laughs> 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 I've been here 11 hours, there he is. Anyway, there's no need to be at a meeting, but anyway, <laughs> it was great because I, I shook his hand and introduced myself and it appeared as he was a homeless man, and he was so nice, and he was shaking, and I knew the difference, and I cried like I do now because it was so amazing that she was looking out for me, and that I knew that if he stayed sober, he wouldn't be a thief anymore either, and that I was a thief just like him. I just did it differently and dressed differently, and so it was just really a beautiful experience, and then I met with Brian, and we went to a meeting, and, and then I... I rented a car and went on trains and drove all over on the other side of the road. I'm like, I shifted with my left hand and it's like, I can do this because when you grow up in Ohio and the driver is busy rolling a joint, you got to shift for that. And so, there it is. You channel that old habit. I can shift left here. I can roll over and I can do it. No problem. Anyway, everything comes in handy. And so, we will not regret the past. Um, so I had a great time there, and a couple of years later, I decided to go to Europe, you know. And I had lived in Germany when I was a kid for two and a half years in Nuremberg, so I decided to go there by myself. I got a great ticket, and before I left, I got sick and passed out on the bathroom floor twice. And I went to the doctor, and he did. I went back to that same doctor that I fired, by the way. And he became a, a great friend, and I got to thank him for putting that AA literature out and help plant the seeds. And, um, and so anyway, they tested my blood and found out that I was really anemic. And he said, hey, high doses of iron, you better be careful on this trip, and you're really tired, and watch out. And then I got in a car accident and went to the hospital, and, and I was okay, and got another room in the car, and I came back, and they tested my blood, and they said, yeah, you're not anemic anymore, but you have a rare blood disease. And so I, for 11 years, I was on and off steroids, and being jacked up on those things made me a crazy woman. And um, I didn't sleep much, and I really had a hard time because I had to slow down a little bit in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm thankful Dr. Paul was my sponsor for a few years um, before he passed away. And he, because he was a double winner, he taught me about that. And he said, you know what, you, if you don't start saying no, it will you. And so I had to cancel all my commitments, both local and out of town to see. And he said, you're not allowed to tell him why. And I'm like, I thought that would kill me. I mean, I had to just 
I had to write no on a piece of paper and stand up when I made the phone call so I could do it because I was terrified. And because the first few times I did it, I said, well, this is my platelet count, and this is what normal is, and you can see I'm really sick, and this is why I have to cancel it. And he goes, clearly you didn't understand me. And I'm like, oh, yes, sir, I did. I won't do that again. <laughs> he goes, you don't owe him a reason. You just take care of yourself. And so I did my regular meetings, and I was up and down with that. And, and the thing that I, that I did, not wrong, it was the best of that I could do at that time, I guess, but I allowed my faith to start going up and down with my platelet counts. Either God's going to heal me, and the numbers would go up, and I'd be grateful, and then they'd go back down, and I'd be devastated, thinking they didn't care, and I'm not working a program, and I should have done a thorough step three, and I just made myself a crazy woman, and I did that for a lot of years, years. And so I, um, I called a friend one morning, just whacked out on the steroids, and I said, I was just having a total panic attack, and and he said, you'll be all right for the rest of today, though, won't you? And I just started crying. I was like, I forgot to live one day at a time. Totally forgot to live in the present moment where God hides. And so I just started thanking him every day, whether my counts went up or down. And, you know, they took my screen out, and that's when I got in that relationship, and that spun me a different way, sideways. But I... um. That worked for me for several years, and then just last year I grew another spleen. Oh, go figure. So I'd have another one out. <laughs> so I um I went through that again, but this time I didn't spin out as bad. And it's like you know, last week they went down again, and it's like you know what? Didn't spin me at all. It's like you know, God's even everything or He's nothing, and I'm going to trust Him, and I'm going to live in the present moment to the best of my ability. And I'm going to try and sponsor people and, and help them and do what you taught me to do and give back what I was freely given. And it's like, I'm so proud to be a member of a program that, you know, you give them your worst stuff and it helps somebody, you know, and it lets them know that they're not alone. And you guys let me know that I wasn't alone. And before I end, I just want to tell you this God thing with my grandpa because, like I said, I didn't find out until he got sober. You know, until I had seven years of sobriety, my mom told me that Grandpa had gotten sober back in 1947, and my grandma was still alive then, and I got to speak at a at a conference, and there was a gentleman there from uh, New Mexico, and he was leading the meeting, and Roger Daniels, Roger and Annie live in New Mexico to this day, and um, anyway, over the weekend at that conference, he said, I want to talk to you about your grandpa, because my uncle got sober in Michigan around the same time, maybe they knew each other. And in my head, I said, are you kidding me? The mitten is big. Anyway, and so, but I thought, yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. Let's talk about him. And so I saw him the other night at that conference, and he said, well, what, sober, what town did your grandpa get sober in? And I said, well, it's this little tiny town outside of Jackson called Vandercook Lake. He goes, that's where my uncle's from. And I'm like, oh, my God. He goes, call your grandma and ask if she, if she remembers him. And I go, okay, because my grandma was alive then. She died at 95. But anyway, so um, I said, what's his name? And he said, Roy Drinkwine. <laughs> I'm like, is that the best name? I'm like, I want to be Doobie Drinkbeer. <laughs> but anyway, so after the conference, I called my grandma, and she answered, and she had had heart surgery. I'm like, oh, sorry about your heart, grandma. By the way, anyway, <laughs> I go, I do remember a man by the name of Roy Drinkwine, and she goes, well, yeah, Roy and Frida Drinkwine lived one street over on McDevitt. She goes, when your grandpa's drinking, that's so bad that I had to throw him out of the house. She said, Roy Drinkwine was the man who carried the message to your grandpa. And I'm like, oh, 